going to be looking in Matthew 11 once again. Matthew 11. If um, you are using the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 970. Matthew chapter 11 or 970 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. And we are moving on through this series that we are talking about that it is the conviction of the disciple. We will see uh, many controversies in these chapters that will culminate in what we call the kingdom parables in chapter 13. And we're gonna be coming across them uh, here in a matter of time in in a couple of chapters. But this morning we're looking at uh, the conviction of the disciple in that where, what is true wisdom? What is true wisdom? And so we're gonna look in uh, verses 16, really through 30, but we're only gonna make it through verse 24 today. So that's all we're gonna read this morning is, uh, is chapter 11, verses 16 through 24. And the word of the Lord says, <clears throat> but what shall I compare this generation It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in you that had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is the word of our Lord while he was on the earth. You know, this week, um, sometimes we uh, get into different conversations about direction and stuff like that. And, and this week, the worship team got together and we were just discussing things that can be improved and stuff like that. You should always be evaluating. There's always room for improvement. And so that just kind of came up. And, and during the course of the conversation, we were talking about the sound system. And, and one of the things that I just kind of brought out, and I've told you guys this before, and uh, many of you know how I feel about this, that, that if we're going to invest money in audio and visual equipment, we should always kind of err on the side of audio. And the reason why is because of Romans 10, 17, where it says, and faith comes by hearing and hearing <clears throat> through the word of Christ. And one of the things I've always said, I, I have really no intention of you guys seeing my big head plastered on a big screen behind me or, or anything like that. I, I've, you know, we're not streaming our services, although there's nothing wrong with that. And, and there are some guys who are trying to convince me to do that. Um, but there's nothing wrong with that per se. 
But if we're gonna spend money on equipment, we're gonna spend it on audio. And the reason why is because you don't need to see the preacher, you just need to hear the word. And hearing, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I can't imagine anyone wanting to see my ugly mug blown up that high anyway. You don't need to see me, you need to hear Christ. And you'll notice through all through the scriptures that there is a great emphasis on hearing. In fact, you can go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, and that great declaration of the faith of Israel. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You notice that first command there, the first and greatest command is to hear. And you will see that emphasis going all the way through the scriptures. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, excuse me, chapter five, verses 11 through 14, the measure of one of the majors of spiritual maturity is the ability to hear the word and understand it. But it's not just talking about physical hearing, not the, not the function of your ear that, that moves through the different caverns of your ear and beats the eardrum and, and goes into your brain and your brain interprets the signals. And then, and then from there, you hear and understand what is happening. We're not, we're not talking about that physical process. What we're talking about is a spiritual hearing, a spiritual hearing. The older theologians used to refer to it as irresistible hearing. I don't, I don't like that term so much because it gives the wrong impression that, that uh, once you hear, you have absolutely no choice in the matter. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. But what we are talking about is effectual hearing, that once you hear the word, it will be effective in your life whether initially for the gospel or whether for it is for your sanctification or your continued growth in the scriptures and in your maturity, it is hearing that will have its intended effect upon the soul. And that is the kind of hearing that we're going for. And so in Matthew chapter seven, uh, excuse me, chap chapter 11, verses seven through 15, as he's asking, and we saw this a couple weeks ago, that the big question of that text is, what have you come to see? Why are you here? Are you here to see um, a, a great soft person who's wearing luxurious clothing? Are you here to, to see someone who is, who is great and mighty works and all of those things? Or are you here to hear a prophet and hear the word of God? And as he brings that, that, that passage to a close, you notice in verse 15, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear he must hear. Now, that is my translation. That is my translation, that the one who has ears to hear, he must hear. The reason why I bring that out is because that is what we call a third person command. Uh, Greek has them, but they are very difficult to translate in English because we really don't have this in English. And so most of the time it says, let them hear. But what you need to understand is that that is a command. No less than me saying, you need to hear this morning. So the same way, Jesus says, the one who has ears, he must hear the invitation. He must hear the word. 
So this morning, what we're gonna see in, in verses going all the way through the end of the chapter is that Christ commands us to hear. Christ commands us to hear. And what is genuine wisdom? It is hearing the word of God and responding in faith and faithful obedience. And so this morning, Christ commands us to hear the invitation to the kingdom. We're talking about the conviction of the disciple. You need to understand that we are not merely convicted of who Jesus is or what he has done, but our conviction also includes how we must respond to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is also as much our conviction as who Christ is and what he accomplished. So this morning, we're gonna ask the question, what all is involved in effectual hearing? What all is involved when we hear the word of God the way Christ wants us to? And there's gonna be four essential components to it. And we're gonna look at the first two this morning, but I'll go ahead and give them all to you. You must, re you must realize our condition we must repent of our indifference. We must rely on grace alone. And we must rest in Christ alone. And so this morning, we're gonna look at these first two, that we must realize our condition and we must repent of our indifference. So you ready? Here we go. Let's look in verses 16 through 19. First off, we must realize our condition. And here we see in verses 16 through 19, Jesus says, what shall I compare this generation to? Now, there's a question here, and, and he's gonna get into really his first parable. We haven't actually seen a parable yet in Matthew. Uh, we're gonna see them a lot in, in chapter 13, so we're gonna hold off explaining them. But Here's what I want you to see, that this is a very small parable and that he is taking a, a common thing that the people see and he's comparing it to this generation. And so the first thing we have to ask is, what does he mean by this generation? And you don't have to go very far. If you, in fact, if you look in, in chapter 12, what we're gonna see is, a, is kind of examples of what this generation entails. For example, in chapter 12, in the first part, it's gonna be those who do not practice mercy. It's gonna be those who, um, who are not interested in the healing of someone. It's gonna be someone who is, who is not with Christ, but they are against him in verse 30. It's gonna be someone who commits the unpardonable sin in verses 31 and 34, 32, and we'll talk about what that means. It's gonna be those who demand signs in verses 38. And then finally, you look in verses uh, 43 through 39 through 45. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And you'll see that this word generation comes up again and again and again. And that's how Christ is defining this. This is what this generation is. In fact, he says in, uh, verse, in verse 45, then it goes and bring forth with it up seven other spirits, etc." Verse 45, it says, the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also it will be with this evil generation. 
And he follows that up with defining who it is that is rightly related to Jesus Christ. It's not those who are physically related, his mother and brothers and such who are rejecting him, but it is all who does the will of my father in heaven. And so this generation that he's referring to is this generation that is not rightly related to Christ. It is those who are unrelated by rejection to him. And what are they like? Jesus says in verse 17, they're like children. Playing games in the marketplaces while their parents are probably willing and dealing. And they're calling out to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, a sad song for a funeral and you did not mourn. There's a lot of ink spilled over this verse. A lot of ink. Who are the children who are calling? Who are the children who are dancing? Who are the children who are mourning? Uh, what songs are they playing? Is this for a wedding? Is this for a funeral? What games are involved? What marketplace is it? Is it actually the marketplace? Or is it a judgment hall? Or is it at the doors or at the gates? Is it this, isn't that? Didn't all that just warm your heart? <laughs> no, not really, did it? The point is very clear. The point's very clear. In verse 17, they played a flute, a song that should have resulted in singing and dancing and celebration, and yet they refused to dance. They sang a sad song, a funeral song, a dirge is what it's called. We're singing a sad song out to you. But they refused to mourn. In other words, what they should have done, the way they should have responded to these songs should have been blatantly obvious and yet they were stubborn and resistant and they refused to respond rightfully. The, the Bible says they were stiff-necked and had hardened hearts and they refused to respond correctly. Can you imagine that I came up here and told you a story this morning, this real funny story where I was, uh, I was out one day and I was, it was in Denver and, and uh, I was out mowing my yard and, and uh, I saw across the street there were these kids playing and, and so they were playing in the street, playing ball and, and, uh, and this car was coming down the road and it was coming entirely too fast. And, and so I looked and one of the boys had dropped his ball and it was rolling out into the road. <laughs> and so the kid, he runs out into the road and he's trying to get his ball and he trips and falls and this driver's not paying attention. And so he's driving faster and faster and he comes right up to the boy. Now, let me ask you a question. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with what I just did? I told you a story that was getting darker and darker and darker, and yet I was getting lighter and lighter and laughing the further I went. That's just wrong, isn't it? Now try this one. It is joy unspeakable and full of glory, full of glory. What's wrong with that? It's just wrong, right? 
And that's exactly what's wrong with what these kids are doing. They're playing with flutes. They're supposed to dance. It's supposed to be obvious. And yet they are stiff-necked and stubborn and refuse to dance. And so the kids try to play a, a, a funeral dirge and they refuse to mourn. So what's the point of that in verse 18? John came neither eating nor drinking. And what's their response? He has a demon. John's ministry was to prepare the nation for the coming of God. He came to them. He preached to them, repent, confess your sins for the kingdom is coming. Confess your sins, repent, and be baptized for forgiveness of sins. And what is their response? He has a demon. Well, what about Jesus? Jesus comes in verse 19, eating and drinking. He offers the kingdom by grace. He comes and he offers forgiveness. He shows mercy. He heals. He does all of these things. And what is their response? He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of sinners, the worst kinds, tax collectors. In other words, what should have been the obvious response to both John's message and to Christ's message, what should have been the obvious response, they were stubborn and stiff-necked and refused to respond correctly. And so, why is that? Why do they do that? Look in, all the way back in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. We see that Christ, excuse me, God, he will never judge the earth by water again. And what does he say? Because the thoughts and intentions of their heart are on evil from their youth. Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 20. This one may not be as familiar to you. This is Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 20 says, says this, it says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. In other words, this is our condition. This is our depravity. We are left to ourselves. We are stiff-necked. We are hard-hearted. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And even when we're in Christ, we still continue with a remaining sin in our lives. Romans chapter seven, verses 18 and 19, Paul talks about how he is still struggling. The things I wanna do, those things I don't do, and the things that I don't wanna do, those things I do. We have to recognize our condition. We have to realize where we are. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter two, verse 14 is a, is a pivotal passage for this. He says that, for the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so we must understand, realize our condition. And that'll show up in two different ways. There, are, there have always been two enemies of the gospel. I've, I've, we've talked about this before, but it, but it bears repeating that there are, there are two thieves 
to the gospel. One church father said, I believe it was Tertullian, he said, just as two thieves were crucified on either side of Christ, so there are two thieves that will rob us of the cross, that will rob us of the gospel. They've always been there. And the first one you might say are the open rebellious. These are the pagans. These are the heathen, the ones who do not care about God, do not respond to God, do not have any inclination of his word, and their goal in life is to be seemingly just as corrupt as they can. These are the ones who, who brag about, who are mighty and mighty and drink and, and all of these other things that, that the Bible talks about. The woe to them who call evil good and good evil. Their, their priorities are completely mixed up. They're completely upside down. They do not care about God. They live in open rebellion against every authority in their lives, except the ones that serve their purposes. They have no thought of God. They are open sinners, no respect for his word. And boy, those are the sinners we like to go after, aren't they? They're the ones we hear about on the news. They're the ones that we see marching in Washington. They're the ones that we see asserting their quote unquote rights. They're the ones that, that we love to talk about and love to rail against in churches. But there's a second enemy on the other side of the gospel. And that is the religious, the moralist, the legalist. They relate to God. They understand, they, they, they think they know who God is. They think that they have it all together, but they're relating to him according to their own righteousness. They follow all the rules. You have the prodigal son and the older brother. You have the Pharisee and the tax collector. Our true conviction, let me ask you, which one needed the love and grace of the father? Was it the prodigal son or the older brother? It was both of them. It was both of them. Which one needed the gospel? Was it the Pharisee or was it the tax collector? Both of them. It was both of them. And beloved, our true conviction is that they are both in need of the gospel. They both stand in need of a savior. And we see both of them at work here. In verse 18, John came preaching repentance. He came neither eating nor drinking. When we call people to repent of their sins, to confess and turn from their sins, what do they do? They call us unloving, intolerant, Bigots, maniacs. It's fine that you're religious, but man, you take it way too seriously. They call us all of these things. Why? Because they love their sin and they will not turn from it. That's why. But then in verse 19, we offer grace to sinners. We eat with tax collectors. We we go after those who are in the ditches and dredges of society. And what do they do then? We're accused of being soft on sin. We're accused of being too lenient. We're accused of all of these things. Boy, oh, beloved, how legalists hate grace. They hate it. The older brother refused to celebrate. He refused to go in 
with that younger brother. He wouldn't even call him his younger brother. That son of yours is what he said. How legalism, how moralism hates grace. Absolutely hates it. But, but beloved, look how Christ ends this in verse 20. In verse 19, he says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, at the end of the day, on the day of judgment, it is neither the heathen nor the moralist who will stand in the judgment, but only those who hear the word of Christ and respond to it by faith. Those are the only ones who will stand in the judgment. Wisdom is justified and will be justified at the end when we stand before Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. And so our conviction is that everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs, no matter what camp they happen to fall into. And so we need to realize our condition. But secondly, we need to repent of our indifference. We need to repent of our indifference. Look in verse 20 through 24. Verse 20 is kind of a transition. He says, uh, he began to denounce the cities where most of his miracles had been done because they did not repent. The question is, how do we respond to Christ? What is, our, what is the wise response? How, what wisdom is justified? What does that look like? And that's what we're gonna see in these following verses. And the first thing we see is that Christ is calling out three Jewish cities because of their refusal to repent. Refusal to repent. Look what he says in verse 21. He calls out Chorazin and Bethsaida. I don't know if I'm saying Chorazin right, so please do not quote my pronunciation. But he says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in ashes and sackcloth. We don't, we don't really know where these cities are, Chorazin. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament that's mentioned uh, we know it was, it was a couple of miles north of the Sea of Galilee, maybe a few miles north. Bethsaida is a little better well-known. A couple of the disciples came from Bethsaida. We also know that that's the site where Jesus healed some blind men. We also know that it was actually coming to Bethsaida. It was in that area that when Jesus walked on the water for the disciples and, and the storm, immediately he calmed the storm after getting into the boat with them. They were actually headed toward Bethsaida whenever that happened. They were very familiar with his miracles they had seen these things. They had, they had watched these things. The word had gotten all around this area. They were very familiar with them, and yet it didn't make a difference. They didn't respond. And so Jesus says to them, this old prophetic speech, woe to you. This is a prophetic way of talking. In fact, when you read this, don't, don't just think of it in, like in the Jesus movies where Jesus is just calmly saying, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. This is an expression of outrage. This is an expression of deep emotional outrage toward the stubbornness of these cities. They're saying, woe to you. Because you if, would not repent. 
If the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. In other words, if things were different and Jesus had gone to them before they were destroyed, they would have repented. And yet these cities see these miracles. What an amazing privilege that would have been. And yet they refuse to respond. (laughs) Same in Capernaum, in verses uh, 23 and 24. In you, Capernaum, Capernaum was actually the base of Jesus's operations. That's where, he, uh, that's where he done many of his miracles, actually. That's where he did most of them. It's a little village on the north shore of the sea. In fact, I've actually been there. Instead, the ruins are still standing. I've stood inside the synagogue. It's a newer synagogue that was built on top of the old one, but I've seen the ruins of the old one. Peter's house is there. You can see it still. You can see just kind of a, get an idea of what village life was like. It's a very small place. And yet many, if not most of Jesus's miracles were performed in Capernaum. That was his base of operation. He would attract amazing crowds, so big of crowds that, that you could not even come into the door of the house. They, he would have to separate himself from them in order to get some distance to, to preach to them. His miracles attracted crowds of people. They would rush to see him, but they would still not repent. What should have been the obvious response? They didn't do it. It's the same outreach here. If the outrage here, if the miracles performed were done in you that were done in Sodom, Sodom would still be on the map and we probably wouldn't have a Dead Sea today. Can you imagine hearing that? Tyre, what are these cities? Tyre is, uh, is still a city. It's still standing today. Um, it's, a, it's a shell of what it once was. It's a fraction of its former glory. And that's because God prophesied against both Tyre and Sidon and, and Isaiah and Ezekiel. They were extremely arrogant, full of pride and pomp. God declared that they would be destroyed. And if you wanna read a fascinating account of Alexander the Great, read his siege on Tyre. He literally built a bridge out to their island and destroyed them. It was amazing. God declared they would be destroyed. They didn't think that they could be, but along came Alexander and proved them wrong and proved God right. Sodom, on the other hand, we're all familiar with Sodom, aren't we? We're all familiar with Sodom. Uh, Genesis chapter 19, God was a city that was well known for its wickedness, for its debauchery, for its paganism, for everything of that. This is a city that basked in, its, in, in all of its wickedness. They, were, they became, the word Sodom today is practically a word for sin. And this is a city that God destroyed so overwhelmingly. He, he poured fire down on them from heaven's fire and sulfur, which was called brimstone at the time. And, and he destroyed them so thoroughly that today most people debate that it even existed. That's how thorough this destruction was. That there is literally no trace of it left on the earth. 
And yet Jesus shockingly says that if the miracles that were done in Capernaum would have been done in Sodom, Sodom would still be on the map today. And as I said, we probably wouldn't have a Dead Sea. Just an amazing statement. And on both of these cities, both of these comparisons, Jesus says, shockingly, Jesus says, that I tell you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for these cities than it will be for you. Think about that. Think about how that must have shocked the people that were hearing. These cities that were synonymous with God's judgment. And yet Jesus says, because you refuse, because you saw the miracles, because you hear the, the, because you hear me, you see me, you have me, and yet you refuse to repent. On that day, it will be more tolerable for them than it is for you. I don't know about you, but that should send fear in our hearts. That should send, can you imagine the indifference that it takes to hear and see Christ doing all of these things? What indifference it must be to see all of that and say, yeah, but I've got better things to do. Yeah, but, you know, he's good. Yeah, but, yeah, he's the best thing that's come around so far, but if something else comes around that's a little better, we'll go there. You know, I, you know, I think often we do the same thing, do we not? In fact, I don't have this on the board. Look in Ezekiel chapter 33, give you a great example of this. Ezekiel 33, we'll wrap up with this. In verse 30, you know, Ezekiel was a, kind of a street preacher, given lots of strange things to do. And in Ezekiel chapter 33, it says, as for you, son of man, you're your people who talk together about you by the walls and by the doors of the houses, they say to one another and to their brother, come, hear what the word is that comes from Yahweh. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act, their heart is set on their gain. And watch this. Behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but will not do it. Let me ask you a question. Does that remind you of a lot of Christianity today? Does that remind you, does that sound familiar? We go to church for an experience. We go to church for, to be essentially entertained, to have our ears tickled. And at the end of the day, we do not hear the word. We do not hear what the Lord says. 
Beloved, is this you? Have you sat in church hearing the gospel over and over and over again? You know the truth, you know the word, but it has not made an impact on your life. It hasn't changed anything. It hasn't become that, that spiritual life that you need. It merely goes in one ear and out the other. How much accountable will you be who has sat under the gospel and has heard it over and over and over again and yet you refuse to repent? You refuse to let go of your pride. You refuse to let go of your sin. You refuse to let go of all of those things that are keeping you from eternal life in Jesus Christ. How much more accountable will you be And how much more tolerable will it be for those who maybe they're the worst of sinners and yet they didn't have what you have. Every week you hear the gospel, but you don't respond. Oh, beloved, don't wait another week. Don't wait another month. Don't wait another year. You need to respond to Jesus Christ today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. How much longer will you test him? How much longer will you doubt his love? How much longer will you put him to the test and tempt him? How much longer will you play with your life? How much longer will you play games with your soul? Come to Christ today. Say, how do I do that? You know the story of Christ that he is God's son sent from heaven, from his father. Because you and I stood in need of a savior. You see, you and I are, both, are all sinners. And what that means is, is that we, we fail to obey God and we fail to be like God. In other words, when God says something, we do it. When God says don't do something, we, when God says don't do something, we do it. When he says do something, we don't do it. God is loving, God is kind, and, and we choose at times to be unloving, we choose to be unkind. All of those things, all of that is called sin. And it's an expression of our rebellion against God. And and Christ came in order that he might take the penalty of those sins. Because it's not just that you are a sinner, but that you are accountable to God for those sins. And that he will judge those sins. And the scriptures say it's important unto man to die once and after that death to face judgment and you will be held accountable before a holy, thrice holy God for your sin, but Christ came and he died on the cross taking your place so that you can have eternal life and forgiveness. He rose on the third day. He was seen by over 500 people at once. He was seen by the apostles who who left their witness for us in those scriptures. He's ascended into heaven and now he's offering himself to you as a savior from your sin and from his wrath. Beloved, if you wanna know what wisdom is, it is first and foremost responding to that gospel. How do you respond? 
But as we saw today, you must turn from your sins. Get rid of your stiff-necked rebellion. Turn from yourself, your pride. Lay it all down. Die to it. And then in turn, you rely on grace alone, that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. No matter what you do, you cannot cause your dead soul to live. But on the other hand, Christ says, come and rest in me and I will give you life. I will give it life more abundantly. And if that's here today and that's you, then I beg you to respond. Repent of your sins and turn to Christ and your Savior. Repent of your indifference. Repent, turn from your pride. Turn from yourself. Turn from the sins that you love but that are destroying you and betraying you and come to Christ alone today by grace through faith alone. If you need more information about that, I would love, I'll be down here at the front and as we are singing, I invite you to come and to talk about that. Maybe you're, one, maybe you're one here. You have sat under preaching for your whole life from the time you were on your mama's knee or your grandfather's as, or your father's as may be the case. From the time you were on your parents' knee to now for decades, you've sat under the gospel, but you've never responded to it. Beloved, we will not judge you. We will celebrate with you. We don't care where you've been. All we care about is where you're going. And we want to make sure that Christ is in your life. That's you today. Will you respond? Maybe you're here and you're living by the rules. You're living by moralism. You've become an accidental Pharisee, an accidental legalist. Maybe you're here today and you're living as if God doesn't even exist. Don't succumb to the two thieves, but come to Christ on the cross and find salvation for your sins. Father, we thank you for this time together. I thank you for those that are here. And Lord, I pray that if there's one here this morning that needs to respond to your grace, I pray that this would be the morning that you would draw them to yourself. Maybe they're here and they've received the word, but they need to confess their salvation and baptism. Lord, I pray that they would come and, and arrange for that. Maybe they're here this morning and they need to join a fellowship of believers that will help them mature and grow in their faith. That will be accountable to them and they be accountable to them. Lord, I pray that you would do that. Whatever their need is, Lord, I pray, whatever our need is, I pray that you would do business with your people this morning. Let's, let's stand together and let's sing this old hymn, Jesus, I come. <laughs>